0: No one is ever excited about power analysis. Oh my God, it's like, it's like the world's worst superhero. I am power analysis man. Freely Filtered, the occasional podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NephJC journal clubs. NephJC is the Twitter nephrology journal club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the articles that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended for medical advice. You should talk with your doctor before making any medical decisions. This podcast discusses off-label indications and unlicensed medications or medical tests. This podcast should not be considered medical advice. If you have questions, talk to your doctor. As Dr. Bedian says, we may be doctors on the internet, but we are not your doctors on the internet. My name is Joel Toff, but most people know me better as my Twitter alter ego, Kidney Boy. Tonight, I am joined by the full filtrate.
1: Samira?
2: Hey, everyone. My name is Samira Farouk. I'm a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai in New York City. I tweet at ss. Farooq.
1: Jenny. My name is Jenny Lin. I am a physician scientist at Northwestern University, and I tweet at J-E-N-N-I-E-J-L-I-N. Swap.
3: Hi, I'm Swapnil Harmat. I go by Swap. On Twitter, I am H. Swapnil. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. And Matt.
4: Hey, everyone. This is Matt Sparks. I'm a nephrologist
0: at Duke University. Tonight, we'll be discussing Amber. This is published in Lancet. Probably one of the under-discussed improvements in nephrology has been development of two novel potassium binders. There's sodium zirconium cyclosilicate, which is LoKalma, and the one we'll be discussing here tonight, Patiromer, brand name Veltasa. I think they are underappreciated because they are largely just a better sodium polystyrene sulfate, and their main innovation is not that they're better potassium binders but that they're better tolerated and less objectionable to patients. They also come, of course, with a modern evidence base that was largely laughable when it comes to uh, sodium polystyrene. And since we as doctors, we don't need to taste these or swallow these or spend time in the bathroom clearing them, these advances in patients' tolerability, they kind of fly under the radar. With improved tolerability, it really opens up novel indications, things that uh, we never used uh, potassium binders for in the past. So in the past, I've cracked wise that resistant hypertension is just a synonym for needs more spironolactone. And that's really because spiro has emerged as the go-to drug to treat resistant hypertension. And this is not just in patients that already have a diagnosis of primary hyperaldo, clearly a population that has a very high rate of resistant hypertension, but in non-selected patients with resistant hypertension in study after study, Spirenolactone is a very effective treatment for these patients. This was most compellingly shown in the Pathway True trial. This was back in 2015. Uh, we covered it in Nefjc. It's actually one of the great URLs. It's slash pathway. Pathway 2 compared uh, spirenolactone, bisoprolol, and uh, it's clonidine, right? That was the third agent. Is I that correct? Dax- Thank you. Bisoprolol. Spiranolactone and doxosacin in, uh, in kind of a round robin where these, each patient was tried on all three of these drugs. They were on each of them for 12 weeks with a washout period between them. And in that study, clearly spiranolactone was the most effective of all uh, of all three of those agents. But an important aspect of that trial is the average GFR in that trial was 90 cc's per minute. And uh, chronic kidney disease is a major cause or comorbidity with resistant hypertension. And, you know, the reality is, is the package for for aldactone just tells you not to use the drug in patients with advanced kidney disease. It's actually, it's not nearly that clear. Package insert states that aldactone is contraindicated in patients with significant impairment of renal excretory function, whatever that means. The investigators in AMBER, wanted to see if spironolactone could be used in resistant hypertension in patients with advanced CKD. They enrolled patients with a GFR of 25 to 45, and then patients were randomized to either placebo or pteromir. And the hope was that adding a potassium binder in addition to the spironolactone would allow these patients to stay on the drug. I think it's a pretty interesting study, and uh, I'm excited to, to talk more about it.
2: Do we know where the amber name comes from, other than amber being a fossilized tree resin? I think
3: a bunch of their studies are sort of like that, right? So I'm looking at the previous uh, solovi who, who did yeah. So they had pearl, uh, they had
0: pearl, they had amethyst, they had opal, and they're doing. They're now enrolling diamond, which is a um you. <laughs> It's the same kind of style. It's the <laughs> same type of trial: randomizing patients to or not, trying to keep patients on. I think it's ACE inhibitors, and I think it's a long trial—not just twelve weeks, but a year-long trial—trying to see a difference in GFR. I believe is the outcome for
2: Diamond. Well, that's a much more interesting answer than what I thought it was going to be. Amber and dinosaurs, or something?
0: Yeah, no, no doubt. The coolest thing about Amber is from uh, from Jurassic uh, Park. Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. Swap. You want to start us off with the
3: methods? Sure. So, uh, just a high level look at the methods. This was a a randomized controlled trial in patients who had resistant hypertension, so three or more drugs and high blood pressure, and whose potassium was not too low, not too high, and they all got spironolactone, all of them. So, in both arms, patients got spironolactone, but they were randomized to either getting the patirumor or a placebo. They were given this for 12 weeks, and if the blood pressure went up, Uh, And the potassium was still okay. The spironolactone was titrated up in both groups and the outcomes are at 12 weeks. So the outcome being how many patients could stay on the spironolactone despite having chronic kidney disease and resistant hypertension. So that's just a bird's eye view of the of the methods. Uh, But, you know, that's not enough for the freely filtered podcast, right? We have to do a deep dive into the methods.
0: When I was reading this article, it just, it felt to me like, boy, this is a, a study design that's significantly informed by Sprint right? Because am I right that the blood pressure technique is right out of the Sprint handbook? Absolutely.
3: They use Omron uh, 907. Yeah, it's also informed by the Pathway 2. So the, the senior author, you know, Brian Williams is a senior author. He's the uh, first author of the Pathway 2 trial. So it's sort of informed a little bit by that as well.
0: Oh, excellent. Okay, well, go, uh, help us go deep into these methods. What do we got?
3: Let's look at one thing at a time. Let's look at the simple things and then try to look at some things that I found very interesting. The population. Uh, as Joel mention pathway two was a fantastic trial but it included patients who did not have ckd Uh, so this amber included specifically patients with ckd which was defined as a gfr between 25 to 45 that's one the second thing was they needed to have a potassium between 4.3 and 5.1 lastly they needed to have resistant hypertension So in this case, resistant hypertension was defined as unattended systolic automated office BP. So like Joel said, it was the sprint kind of method for measuring blood pressure. And the blood pressure was actually measured using the same device, the Omron 907, which has a five minute rest and then takes an average of three readings with no one in the room. And that blood pressure had to be between 135 and 160, thinking that over 160, there was no equipoise. They had to be treated and less than 135 is not really resistant hypertension anymore. What about the drugs? So they had to be on three or more antihypertensive drugs, including a diuretic, an ACE or an ARB. And that's all. So they did not have a calcium channel blocker as a a third drug. They said, you know, some other third drug, which is, I don't know why this was done. Usually the classic definition of resistant hypertension is ACD. uh, So CCB, ACE or ARB and a diuretic. It's a minor point, but just something to keep in mind. They did exclude patients who had untreated secondary causes of hypertension and a bunch of other uh, criteria uh, which are in the supplementary table if you want me to look at it. The uh, randomization itself was centrally done. Uh, There were 10 countries and 62 outpatient centers. So if you look at the author list, first author is from Indiana and the second author is from France. Then there are one, two, three, four author, five authors who are from the sponsor, that is Relipsa, the maker of Uh The second last author is also from the US and the last author is from UK. So you may think this is a 10 country. So, you know, patient must have been enrolled from France, USA, UK, uh, but you would be wrong. Um, there were... <laughs> 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 so uh in france they they screened five patients but no one was enrolled from all of usa and uk they enrolled 17 patients and the other patients were all enrolled from eastern europe and central
0: europe did they also have south africa they said they, they mentioned that in the discussion so, that yeah, sorry.
3: yeah so the other countries include germany and south africa so there's no investigator from there but they were Those 17 17 patients include Germany, South Africa, UK and US. 280 of the 300 patients were from Eastern Europe, uh, Bulgaria and a few other countries. Hungary, I think. It doesn't mean this, you shouldn't believe the study or anything. It's just kind of interesting aside. So what was done? Uh, so these patients were and consented and they had a screening uh, period between 4 to 10 days. The purpose of the screening visit was to ensure that they
0: truly had resistant hypertension. They had four screening visits. They had to come and show over and over again that their blood pressures were consistently elevated.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And, and that's actually pretty important because we often see that patients are labeled as resistant hypertension but once you check their blood pressure properly uh, make sure they are taking their pills suddenly they are not resistant anymore um, so i think that's a important feature they also taught them how to do home blood pressures uh, but the blood pressure criteria was uh, based on office automated unattended blood pressure measurement so after they uh, after the end of the screening period if their blood pressure was still 135 to 160 and the you know gfr potassium was okay they were randomized which was Uh, That was all legit. It looks like a central randomization with the concealment of allocation to getting peteromor or placebo. uh, And all of them got spironolactone. Let's talk a little bit about how spironolactone was titrated up. Uh, So the key here was that they wanted the spironolactone to be effective, uh, but not harmful. So uh, they started off with 25 milligram and the, the plan was to increase it to 50 milligram of spironolactone. But this was only done if the blood pressure was uh, greater than 150 and the potassium was less than 5.1. Uh, if the blood pressure was at target, so it's less than 120, you do not need to increase the spironolactone, of course. And the same time, if the K was more than 5.1, you do not, uh, you cannot increase the spironolactone. So that was
0: okay. So the potassium had to be fine and the blood pressure had to be more than 120, and then they would double the spiro.
3: It makes sense, right? Clinically, that's how you do it. If you're not happy with the 25 milligram, you bump up to 50 milligram. But you will only do it if the potassium is safe. So that sort of makes sense. And then they all got Petiromar and Placebo. You know, uh, now, Petiromar, I think, does not taste as bad as KXLA does, this sodium polystyrene sulfonate.
1: You guys didn't taste it at Kidney con?
0: No, we tasted Lokelma. We did Lokelma at Kidney con.
2: Well, that's actually a nice segue into uh, capsulology. So every now and then on Freely Filtered, we like to do a special edition of capsulology called Powderology. Which is going to be what we're going to talk about today. Um, so before I talk about the placebo, I learned a little about about patermer since it's not a drug that we've been using as for as long. So just the chemistry of it, the active ingredient is patermer calcium sorbitex, and the inactive ingredient is xanthan gum and it's defined as an amorphous free floating powder and the uh, manufacturing uh, materials describe it as an off white to light brown powder. And so I looked at their instructions for patients and so you take one packet um, the max dose, they say, is I think six five or six packets. You mix it in a third cup of water, and it should become cloudy, and that's normal. And if it's a good consistency for you, you can drink it. If it's too thick, you can add a little bit more water. Um, and then they have some interesting do-nots, and so you can't put it in a blender, so it's not going in your smoothie, and you can't put it in <laughs> anything uh, – <laughs> You can't put it in anything hot, or um, it cannot be heated once you've already mixed it in. So a lot of nice guidelines, um, but should be pretty easy to follow. Um, so for the placebo group, they gave. I am
0: so disappointed. The world has been denied the batiramir smoothie. That's just a that's a shame.
2: <laughs> uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't know why. I mean, it seems like a fairly fine powder, but. Um- or maybe they don't want people adding
1: bananas or. <laughs> <laughs> <there>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: your banana, strawberry, and your smoothie, sir.
2: <laughs> uh, so the placebo obviously um, was a powder, and so they used this uh, compound called microcrystalline cellulose, which is actually just a fancy word for refined wood pulp, and it's used actually pretty commonly for. <laughs> A lot of different things. um, But the listed uh, indications are it's a texturizing agent. It's an anti-caking agent. It can be used as a fat substitute and emulsifier. And it's commonly used in vitamin supplements or tablets. And so I'm sure many of us have had this at some point. And if you have too much of it, it's actually a pretty strong laxative. So I don't know what's too much, but... I wonder, you know, if there was any notable difference in the people that took five or six <laughs> packets versus
0: M- maybe wood causes an increase in potassium. Their diarrhea was balanced between both groups.
2: Yeah, so yeah, that, that's what I learned about the in the special Powderology edition.
0: I think they really should have renamed this study: Potiramir versus Wood.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: wood chips.
0: <laughs> okay, so patients get randomized to Potiramir or Wood, and they take Spironolactone. And uh, they're checking their blood pressure, what's it like every couple of weeks they're coming in to, for clinic visits, is that That's right? That's right. So not only is the blood
3: pressure being checked, but the other thing that you're wanting to know if you're giving them increasing doses of spironolactone is their potassium. So their potassium is being checked. Now, if the blood pressure did drop too much, to so less than, less than 100 Uh, the if they were on 50 the spironolactone dose could be dropped to 25 and if they were on 25 the spironolactone could be stopped similarly if the gfr uh, dropped by 30 to 50 percent the dose of the spironolactone could be reduced or you know if it didn't bounce back up it could be discontinued but what if they got hyperkalemia right what would you do if it is more than 5.1 so this was a little bit more uh, so if the k was more than 5.5 but less than six and they were only on uh, two packets of that's eight. That was 8.4 8. grams. The
0: two packets is 8.4 right. grams.
3: So if the K was high, but not terribly high, the dose of the uh, pettinomar stroke placebo was increased by two until they went up to six. So from two, they could go up to four. From four, they could go up to six. And the K was repeated again to see if it had come down to less than 5.5. Uh, but if it was at the max dose and the K was still more than 5.5 to 6, then they came off the um, spironolactone.
0: What if they were 50 milligrams? Would they drop the dose or would they just stop the drug? Computer?
3: Right, you're right. If it was 50 milligrams, they could go back to 25 milligrams in addition to that. And if the, if the K was more than 6... Then they would just repeat it once again, make sure that it was really more than six and it was, they were taken off. So you would only, you were only allowed to fiddle with the if the K was between 5.5 and 6. So that was what was done uh, for the hyperkalemia. And the outcome here is how many patients, the primary outcome for the study was not blood pressure, was not potassium. It was how many patients could be safely given spironolactone. So at the end of the 12-week period, what is the proportion of the patients who remained on spironolactone in the peteromor versus the placebo group? Um, In addition to that, they had a bunch of secondary outcomes. The secondary outcome being, you know, um, change in blood pressure, uh, which was again the automated office blood pressure. Uh, The proportion of patients um, whose K went up to more than 5.5 change in albuminuria, quality of life, and and a few other things. And in terms of uh, analysis, uh, they needed 280 patients uh, to have the uh, power to have a 20% difference between uh, the proportion of patients who could successfully remain on spironolactone was 20% higher with Petiromer versus placebo. In addition to that, with with this kind of sample size, they also had an 80% power to detect a four millimeter difference in uh, blood pressure uh, between these groups. The analysis was otherwise fairly straightforward, given that it is a 12-week uh, trial. And
0: the, the trial was run by the sponsor. And uh, one other aspect of the methods that was, I think, really interesting and something they also did in Pathway was they did uh, high performance liquid chromatography to look at drug levels. They were only looking at drug levels of Spiro. I know these were on people were on a bunch of other drugs, but they, were, they tracked the levels of Spiro, which was super interesting when we get to the results because the stuff hangs around forever. I mean, it was shocking how long the stuff hang around. And that data was interesting and uh, something that I was not aware Yeah,
3: of. And, and it was uh, spiro in this case, but there was a trial with the uh, eplerinone, uh, which in heart failure, I think, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I, I can't recall. Uh, Ephesus? Maybe emphasis. Yeah. Ephesus. So that um, uh, maybe emphasis or something like that. It, the trial was negative. Uh, it was a worldwide trial, but when they looked at, they had blood samples uh, stored or urine samples stored and they looked for the presence of eplerenone and it turned out in the eastern european countries uh, none of the patients who were supposed to be taking eplerenone were actually given eplerenone so the suspicion was that um, the investigators were selling the drug uh, and not giving anything to the subjects.
0: And, and so there was a letter from the- So the other name of that trial was placebo versus uh, placebo, wood versus wood. <laughs> uh, on, on this topic. It was
3: maybe, maybe this was an indication, though I think spironolactone is less uh, lucrative on the black market compared to a plenone.
0: And let's just be clear that was not Ephesus. Ephesus is a positive trial that shows that a improves survival in heart failure patients post-MI. I don't want to make sure none of the study PIs. I'm sure a lot of the FSS PIs are listening to Freely Filtered in their spare time. I don't want them writing angry letters that we denigrated their study. <laughs> Let me find out which study is this. We'll find out what trial.
1: We'll- One question I have for you, Swap, is for these patiramer trials, do we feel pretty confident that the study participants followed the six-hour window in which they are not supposed to be taking medications?
3: Right, right, and um, the,
1: surrounding their patiramer doses.
3: Exactly. So, uh, as Jenny pointed out, they are not supposed to take a bunch of drugs around the time they are taking the uh, petiromer, probably because of the fact that the drug can petiromer can bind, well, like those bind those it, drugs right? The GI well. tract. Yeah, and like three hours before, three hours after.
0: It was three hours before and three hours after. Though they needed to do uh, after patirmer's pivotal trial, the phase three pivotal trial the FDA asked them to do a special analysis looking for drug absorption and they did the trial and it was not there was no signal there yeah, the, I, think it, I, like this, I think this concern is out of uh, a whole bunch of caution and I don't think it's so I don't think it's nearly as important as we worried about they did fine with just about every drug.
1: Jenny tell us about the results. The TLDR version of results is more people in the patiramer arm could stay on spironolactone, but there were no significant differences seen between patiramer and placebo in terms of blood pressure changes and albuminuria, although blood pressure did go down over the course of the study. Can you rewind for just one second? So even though it's not like one of the top line results is
0: that spironolactone worked great in the CKD population right? They got like 12 or 14 points of blood pressure drop, uh, very similar to what we saw in pathway two, that this drug works just as well in CKD patients as it did with a GFRN-90. That's not part of the study, right? Because they weren't comparing those two groups, but it is a piece of information that we didn't have good data on. And then the next question about the albuminuria that I had, they were clear in the di- manuscript that there was no difference in the albuminuria, but I didn't see anywhere in the, ma- in the manuscript did the albuminuria go down in both groups?
1: Um, Let's see. So this is actually in the supplemental data, supplemental table three. That's why you listen to Freely Filters. So you don't have <laughs> to
0: read the supplemental data. Jenny reads it for us.
1: And then I read it because Swap reads it. <laughs> And I feel right. it's like peer pressure in here. Um, so there is they they do drop in both um, by about like how much? What, what, what was the baseline um, albuminuria? So at baseline, so what's interesting is in the placebo group it was three ninety three milligrams per That's gram. milligrams per gram, right? Three ninety three, and then the, in the patiramer it was four thirty two, and okay. then it dropped about forty eight points. per so the average change. 10, um,
0: 15%. Yeah,
1: it was about 48.8 points in the placebo group and uh, 28 po- uh, 27.7 in peteromer, but the p-value was 0.66. So it didn't test to be significant. It's a little bit of the opposite of what you would hypothesize. Right? Except for the spiro did lower the prone area. Not a uh, lot. Not a but lot, so. but in, you know, in both groups.
0: Okay, now you can go deep, go deep onto the
1: into the, <laughs> to the nitty-gritty. Okay, so we're going to first start with the profile of the study participants, and this is outlined in figure one. If, um, initially, 574 people were screened, but only 295 were enrolled. And the top reasons for not passing the screening included being outside the target eGFR range, of 25 to 45, or being outside the potassium range of 4.3 to 5.1. So in the end, uh, 148 patients were randomized to spironolactone and placebo, while 147 were randomized to spironolactone and patiromer. And all of these patients were included in the final analysis. Although the number of adverse events was generally low, there were more adverse events Actually, in the placebo group. They were feeding them wood, of course. <laughs> You're not supposed to eat wood. That's true. Um, no wood without your smoothie, right? So, the baseline demographics of the cohort are outlined in table one, and the arms are actually pretty evenly matched. Uh, the cohort is generally older, so the majority of patients in both arms are older than 65. The cohort, you know, being primarily based in Europe, is also 99%. White. And this raises questions in terms of the generalizability to the American population and to the you know, global population.
0: That generalizability just rolls up. Take a
4: bow, Jenny. That was beautifully
0: done. <laughs> professional podcaster here. I, I, Did you hear me? I just, I said it, generalizability. I've, I've mastered it. I had to get special hypnosis training. I worked with a therapist for weeks. I've conquered my inability to say generalizability.
1: Now, can you do that with marbles in your mouth? Like Eliza Doolittle. No, I can't. You guys don't, don't do that to me. You're killing me.
2: Generalizability.
1: She's a master. Matt, let's hear it. Uh,
4: generalizability. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay.
1: The mean EGFR was in the mid-30s for both groups, and the serum creatinine in American units is 1.7 milligrams per deciliter. Those are called freedom units. (laughs) That's in freedom
0: (laughs) units. uh...
1: So according to Google, this conversion involves multiplying the micromoles per liter by 0.113, or if you want to just... For the sake of simplicity, zero point zero one. So the mean potassium in both arms was about four point seven, and also in terms of the characteristics of the participants, fifty percent. Uh, were diabetics in both arms, and almost all patients in both arms were on both diuretics and RAS blockade. Okay, so now we've been yammering away for a while, and the meat and potatoes of the study is really the primary endpoint. And remember, the primary endpoint was the difference in the proportion of patients remaining on spironolactone at week 12 between treatment groups. As stated in Table 2, the authors found that 86% of patients receiving peteromer remained on spironolactone at week 12 As opposed to 66% in the placebo arm. And this is with a p-value of less than 0.0001. So let's not forget that there were also six secondary endpoints, which we will hit one by one. The first one, was there a difference between treatment groups in the systolic automated outpatient blood pressure from baseline to week 12? And the answer to that is no, although the blood pressure in both groups did drop about by about 11 points, which you can see in table two and in figure three. Going on to the next secondary endpoint, was there a difference in changes in potassium levels over time? So yes, the placebo group had significantly more patients with a potassium greater than 5.5, and this is at a p value less than 0.0001. This is seen in Figure 2 and in Supplemental Figure 2. You can see that overall, the mean potassium levels in the patiramer group were lower throughout the study. Uh, were there differences in average daily dose and cumulative dose of spironolactone? Is yes. Um, there was a difference of 384.7 milligrams between groups at a p value of 0.0021. Uh, there were significantly more patients who discontinued spironolactone in the placebo group, and this was as early as two weeks into the study. And then finally, were there differences in changes in albuminuria from baseline to week 12? As we discussed before, the answer is no, although there was a drop and then it's a little bit higher, a trend towards a higher uh, urine albumin to creatinine ratio in the pteromir group. In terms of adverse events, the most frequently reported side effect was diarrhea in both groups, and they also experienced a decline in EGFR. So that pretty much wraps up the results section.
0: Well, actually, the, you know, there's some other cool, cool stuff was on the. Well, um,
1: oh, you want to go through the metabolite. Um, I want to talk about the spernal. I'm all. I'm all about the spernal.
0: metabolites. <laughs> yeah.
3: So, so if I can, I just found out. I, I asked a friend, uh, that's Brian Bird, and he tells me. That it was TopCat. Uh, so TopCat was um, spironolactone in preserved patients with preserved ejection fraction, heart failure, and I think that overall primary outcome was negative, though uh, there was one of the secondary outcomes was positive. And they realized that uh, none of the patients in Russia had hyperkalemia
0: with the spironolactone. And that was They're the clue. That was the clue that they were that taking the damn clue. drug because there was no hyperkalemia. Yeah. Oh man! And there was there was, and then they tested <clears throat> for candrenalone,
3: and they found that um, in, Re- in the Russian part. Uh, participants didn't have any known in their um, uh, blood samples so and it was spironolactone right so i i, I can't understand why spironolactone would have such a value
0: it's the important thing to know that if you're gonna fake results and use placebo for both groups Manufacture adverse events with hyperkalemia, so to cover your tracks. People are always getting tripped up by forgetting to manufacture adverse events with fake data. Okay, so we did use, uh, we did uh, this. Uh, we looked for our metabolites here, and first of all, there was really high adherence to the regimen. It was like over ninety percent of people. Uh, they found that they were taking the drugs. I think it was over ninety-five percent in some of the in some of the periods. So there was really good adherence to the drugs.
1: Yeah, it stayed stayed around for at least one to two weeks. In the, after the discontinuation, thirty percent of the people that like, was detected at three weeks, yeah, right? Thirty-six percent. You know, remember the
0: whole trial is only twelve weeks long. And I presume these are active metabolites. Do we know? Is that true? I think Gendrinone is active. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the way they were talking in the in the in the discussion, they think these are active metabolites, and so this drug sticks around for literally a quarter of your entire treatment time after you stop it, which I think. Works against your ability to show separation in albuminuria and certainly in blood pressure, and and they also had the mean duration of exposure. So it was sixty-eight days in the um, in the placebo group versus seventy-five days in patiramir. I mean that's just a difference of one week, and so mm-hmm. it, it's not surprising to me that you weren't with the difference between between the two groups of only one week that you weren't able to show a nice a nice separation in blood pressure.
2: I kind of wish we could know the average placebo intake in a placebo group, just for personal curiosity.
0: Measure the amount of wood chip. The high-performance liquid, liquid chromatography for wood. Excellent. Uh, any other any other results that anybody thought that... So the, the calcium and magnesium stuff. What happened with those things? I didn't know
3: that patinomer would have an effect on that. Uh, the mean calcium and magnesium did not change, but they were pretty intense about measuring the mean calcium and magnesium. So if you look at... Um, supplemental table five <laughs> sorry I have, I have to flip yeah five you're right at five uh they they show the values so the values look pretty similar but it turns out that a couple of patients had hypomagnesemia in uh, the petiromer and one patient
0: had hypercalcemia in these uh, petiromers
2: yeah, the hypo, the hypomagnesemia, I think, is known.
0: And I think there was a C. Jason paper where they looked at urine phosphorus, and urine phosphorus dropped, and they presumed it was from the calcium in the binder binding up uh, dietary phosphorus, kind of acting like a calcium, uh, calcium-based binder. Maybe that frees up more
3: calcium to be absorbed.
0: Maybe, uh, but they and they looked at urinary calcium, enough, and again, I'm, uh, this is a deep recesses of the brain, and. There were some modest changes to Buschinski paper.
3: The other uh, small nugget that probably no one's interested in is the supplemental table two, which shows that there is an ACE inhibitor called Zofenopril.
2: Sorry, can you say that again? I didn't... <laughs> Zofenopril. That is The three patients
3: were on the ACE inhibitor called Zofenopril, Z-O-F-E-N-O. Oh,
2: that's that's a great one for the script spelling bee. I thought
3: I knew the names of all ACE inhibitors, but I-
0: I'm going to tell you, nephrology fellows, be prepared to know the proper dosing of Zofenopril for next year's FitBull. <laughs> is somebody is somebody prepared to talk about discussion or are we just going to wait this? <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah.
0: I Matt. didn't have anything prepared. I haven't read the paper. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's, that's why you guys come for the deep analysis. <laughs> it's just like a real journal club where half the people haven't even read the paper.
2: <laughs> I have a, I have a few uh, extra capsulology, but about Zofenopril. Oh, bring it. Um, it is a pro drug with Zofenoprilat, which is the active metabolite. And its trade name is Zocardis.
0: Zocardis. Oh my God, that sounds like a calcium channel. Yeah, Micardis. Oh, Macardis. Oh, that's an yeah. ARB. One of the things that's interesting about the study design, I don't think most people would where they would write for spironolactone and patiromer at the f- same time. I've used spironolactone off-label in CKD stage three and stage four frequently, and most of the time you can get away with it without getting hyperkalemia, even with an ACE inhibitor. Most almost all my patients are mm-hmm. also on uh, loop and thiazide type diuretics or loop or type diuretics. And I think that helps you get away with uh, a lot of hyperkalemia. And then if I ran into hyperkalemia in the past, I've always just kind of backed off on my Spiro or my uh, ACE inhibitor. Uh, but there's a few exceptions where I've actually added patiromer, able to maintain the ARB. But I thought it's an interesting study designed to say, hey, we're going to start people off with the potassium binder, whether they need it or not. And just prevent them from ever developing the side effect. Have you guys ever used uh, these potassium sparing binders to maintain uh, RAS inhibition or spironolactone or aldosterone antagonists? So we don't even have uh,
3: petiromer in, in uh, Canada yet available, nor Lokilma. Do, do you have um, ACE inhibitors
0: yet in Canada? <laughs>
3: <laughs> we, we we do. We don't have Zofenopril, uh, but we, <laughs> we do have... Uh... We do have Perindopril and Enalopril, but interestingly enough, uh, we have in fact published our chart review, a retrospective chart review where in patients even with GFR less than 45, spironolactone causes, you know, about 10 millimeter drop in uh, blood pressure. It seems to me pretty attractive to try something like this. You know, we often, you know, we'll bump up the chlorothalidone and we'll spend a lot of time with the dietitian talking about this and that. But if it would be safe and easy to keep them on it, I'm sort of gently persuaded that this may not be a bad option.
1: Now, what I would have wanted to see in the results um, actually was the potassium stratified by increments of EGFR to see like, you know, the lower your GFR is, if your potassium actually does stay within range, or were those the ones who were forced um, to drop out of the study? Because at least thinking about, you know, the patients that I would be wanting, where I don't want to stop you no know, ras blockade, and I don't want to stop spironolactone if they're already on it. This is would be the group that I'm most worried about. So I would be curious to see. You know, it would have been nice to see that in the supplement at the very least, in terms of graphing out the potassium effects by um, increments of eGFR.
0: One of the things they did in these patients is they um, they did 24-hour urines at the beginning, and they looked at uh, 24-hour urine sodium and potassium and that would be another way to look at the data did people that had high baseline potassium intake were those the patients that blew through and developed hyperkalemia or was it not related to dietary potassium since i didn't read the supplement was that in the supplement no it wasn't so the 24 hour
3: urine sodium was uh, about 190 millimoles uh, at baseline 180 you know 175 and 189 in the other groups but they don't uh, gave us those results is probably
0: you. They got a lot of papers to write, a lot of papers. Okay, I'm gonna try to reel this back. I think the surface complaint about the study is they weren't able to show a difference in blood pressure. Is that I, even though that wasn't the primary outcome, really what you want to see when this design is that, hey, we're able to keep people on the spironolactone more often with the drug. And that then resulted in better blood pressure control. Right. And at the end, we've got, we're able to keep people on the drug more often, and we don't see a difference in blood pressure control. Does that kind of make you less excited about this study?
2: Makes you wonder do you really need the spironolactone, or do they just need the better follow up or everything that was part of this study design?
0: I mean, the blood pressure, the blood pressures were a lot lower. I mean, they had like 12 to 14 point blood pressure drops. And they said that after they washed out of the drug, they had a follow up visit two weeks later when they were off spironolactone. Their blood pressures were already up seven points.
2: So you think a lot of this is maybe this long half-life of the metabolites
0: i think they didn't anticipate this drug hanging out so much and i think they didn't anticipate people being able to struggle along on the spiro for so long without the pteromir i think they were hoping people would drop out it is interesting that the 12-week duration of the study is identical to the 12 weeks that they had in pathway two maybe the study needed to be twice as long
3: it was spironolactone versus
0: spironolactone but yeah hopefully yeah You know, people are still hesitant
3: of using spironolactone in this kind of a population. And maybe this, uh, you know, people like us are more comfortable in using spironolactone in this population, whether it is with or without peteromar.
0: So blood pressure is a surrogate outcome for real outcomes. And this was a, being able to be on the drug is a surrogate outcome for blood pressure. It just, uh, it does feel like it's a little, it's a little short of what we want to see ultimately. Looking at the adverse events, they had uh, 4% in the placebo group and 6% in the pateromere group develop hypotension, which is impressive. And after you've really conclusively proven that these patients have hyper resistant hypertension to add 25 milligrams of, uh, spironolactone and get, uh, you know, one in twenty five of these people getting symptomatic hypotension.
2: And just for the record, the, the wood chips did not cause diarrhea. I was worried about that.
0: Or or they caused the same amount of diarrhea as Peterimir.
2: I mean that's why I wanted to see how much how much placebo grams they took. Then we would be have the answer to that question.
3: Yeah, I mean, look at uh, the kind of study I would like to see in, in for example, dialysis patients would be uh, to see if we can take away that, um, you know, the increased mortality in the long interdialytic period, you know, the long weekends, uh, maybe some of it is hyperkalemia, maybe some of it is, you know, MIs and volume overload or whatever, but I'm, I'm sure some of it is hyperkalemia. Uh,
0: anybody have any other comments or anything interesting else to say about the, uh, this study? I think we're going to wrap up Amber. Matt, during the discussion, there was um, there was an interesting side discussion about the philosophy of adding drugs to treat side effects from other drugs. There were a number of people that were just kind of philosophically opposed to this. Matt, do you want to expound on that at all?
4: I just think I made a comment that I think one of the few things I actually still remember from medical school was – not to uh, treat a side effect of a drug with another drug. You know, Maybe in this case, you say, all right, give them pteromir, spironolactone. They get hypomagnesemia. Give them some magnesium. They get diarrhea. You give them loperamide. They get constipated. You give them some uh, wood chips. <laughs> I don't know exactly. <laughs> and then next thing you know, you have the same blood pressure in both patients.
0: Yeah. I, and, I, and I mean, that's how I generally treat it now that when I see hyperkalemia, I'm not reaching for patiromer. I'm generally lowering my RAS inhibition or turning up my diuretic, I guess. But how true. many times do you, you
4: see this and they come in clinic and you have a potassium of 5.5 and you say, you know, tell me about, you know, what's going on? And they're like, well, I just harvested a whole bunch of tomatoes and I've been eating them all day. And you're like, Okay let's stop doing that. Uh, Or you can say, here's some Pteromir.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. I think that this may make people have that conversation less and use the drug, but I guess depending on your philosophy, that may or may not be okay.
0: What I'm really waiting for is that study that closes the loop and says, hey, adding Pteromir to your RAS inhibition or your spironolactone actually improves patient outcomes. Show me that it delays dialysis show me that it prevents heart attacks
4: but will they ever do that I mean I have a
0: hard time believing that will happen these
4: are the kind of studies we're going to see there I mean it's just it's gonna be very expensive they already have
0: approval and this is, this is what we're I don't the diamond trial is a 52-week trial so that 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 starts to get to a point where you're going to be able to see some outcomes maybe and what's the end point what's the primary endpoint you got that? me I knew I knew that was coming Matt. I don't know I don't know what the end point is.
2: Would you use this to liberalize someone's diet and potentially increase their quality of life?
0: Now there we're talking right there. Yeah. That's interesting.
4: Go ahead and eat eat the bananas. Let, let them eat the tomatoes, right? I mean just sprinkle a little pateromere on whatever you're eating.
2: Just well not in a smoothie.
0: Just not in a smoothie. Well, maybe in a smoothie, but after the blender. Definitely not in your soup because it's too hot. <laughs> Gazpacho maybe. Lots of tomatoes.
4: Lots of tomatoes there. <laughs> Lots of tomatoes. Avocados. I mean, could you imagine a life oh, without yes. Avocado that? toast.
2: So, I, I mean, it, it's supposed to be tasteless. So, maybe they could flavor it and then it would just open everything so up. why did
4: they not name the trials after foods that have high
0: potassium? Like banana. <laughs> <laughs> Matt just wants to use the, the line, this studies bananas.
4: <laughs> Guacamole. Fifty-two week trial of <laughs> ras inhibition and patiramer.
1: Fifty-two week trial, but then how long will it take between like the late breaking session? I mean, I would I would be front row
4: tweeting the living heck out of a guacamole trial.
0: <laughs> okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna send the the rough cut of this to the lipsa team. And let's see if we can get these studies renamed. I think we've got a good thing going here. So we're done with the. Uh, glomerular filtrate portion of the show and now we're on to the tubular secretion and uh, what we wanted to do is uh, kind of just review and talk about uh, the most recent kidney week in Washington DC. I thought it was an, an exceptional meeting. Swapnil, what do you, you want to tell us?
3: Uh, so a couple of things. One is that uh, it's happening even more often now than before is that I probably spend as much time inside a room As much as standing outside in the hallway, Uh, you just stand there and you bump into people and you that you have not met for many years or from different countries or, you know, different cities. And I spend so much time catching up with friends and colleagues. It's it's one of the. You know, people talk about networking, which, you know, that's not a word
4: I like. Swap, tell the truth. How many selfies did you get a day?
3: (laughs) This time I was pretty restrained, I think, compared to last year. (laughs) But the other thing I would say is that Kidney Week started off with uh, you and Joel tweeting a lot. And then, you know, I joined in and, and it used to be we would dominate the people who were tweeting. And this year, it's been a change. So, you know, we are off the top two or three, I think. Uh, there are a lot of new faces and new pl- people who have come up who did an awesome job tweeting. So, um, Aldo, uh, Alex Meraz, Joshua Weitzman from uh, previously Northwestern, now with Beth Israel. He was tweeting up all the... And it was very nice because uh, some of these people went to sessions that I wanted to go, but I could not go. And so I'm sitting in some different session and following that tweet. So a lot of fresh names, fresh faces. Some of them NSMC interns. Some of them not have uh, have taken up to tweeting, and it's it's fabulous to see uh, this growth.
4: So 2011, 145 people were tweeting the hashtag. And how many this year?
3: I'm just looking that up. So uh, we had twenty. Uh, we had 3,910.
1: Okay, so 4,000 people. That's like almost a third 4, of the 000. attendees. Right.
0: Nearly 4,000 people. That's crazy. I think the 149, that was
4: that was back when it was you could just say anything. Because no one was listening. Nobody <laughs> was no listening.
2: <laughs> yeah.
4: <laughs> I mean, it was just a wild, wild west. And it was illegal to t- tweet a slide. And that's right. And it was illegal. You couldn't do that. we look around. Oh, my gosh. They just saw me tweet this slide. I'm
0: out. Right. And um, in 2014, there weren't even 4,000 tweets. <laughs> oh, my God. There's 3,500 tweets in 2014 by 573 people. Jenny, do you, can you remember anything from that far back about Kidney Week?
1: Yeah. So one thing um, that I was super excited about was actually the second annual uh, pre-meeting for uh, young investigators in basic science. So this was a meeting that uh, Matt actually was the chair of with Alan Roden. And um, it really gives a forum for fellows, graduate students, postdocs, junior faculty to present uh, their work in basic science and in a supportive environment. And within this day, um, I had the Opportunity to participate in a career development panel, uh, which I thought was really cool in terms of, you know, people were really wanting a lot of advice about what you should do in terms of starting career, uh, mentorship, sponsorship, and all these different themes that sometimes, unless you have a really great mentor, sometimes you don't get the answers to these questions. And so, one challenge I would pose to the leadership of ASN is to see whether or not they would consider formalizing some sort of committee or mechanism by which. Uh, people who are really interested in a career in research um, to be able to network and um, have these career development opportunities to learn about what you need to do to advance and how you get from being a resident all the way into the faculty stages and even as faculty, how do you even how do you stay in the game? And so I thought that was a really cool opportunity, and there was a lot of enthusiasm in the room. Uh, The people on the panel ranged from junior faculty all the way to senior faculty. And so that I thought that was really cool. And I really would love to see the ASN sponsor uh, more of this type of stuff in an official capacity. Um, I know that there's really great stuff with stars and, you know, fit bowls and everything, but um, this is an area that where there is a need. Um, The second thing I wanted to say was actually not related to kidney week, but also while giving suggestions to the leadership is American Heart, actually, um, at their scientific sessions in Philadelphia that I had the opportunity to attend had puppies um, available for people to interact with <laughs> between um, scientific sessions. And the rationale being that interacting with animals actually l- helps lower blood pressure and it promotes cardiovascular health. So, you know, and all those puppies were from an animal rescue, and they all were adopted that weekend. So we we care about hypertension as nephrologists, right? So we also should be part of the puppy parade. I don't know.
0: For basic scientists, they should have used mouse models.
1: <laughs> that would like raise a lot of people's blood pressure, right? Like all these mice <laughs> you like playing around.
0: Rodents. <laughs> Complete opposite
4: effect, except for a few people that really enjoy it. Samira, what do you got?
2: Uh, yeah, I had a really great kidney week. I felt for you know. The entire time is really immersed in medical education, trainees, um, just kind of looking forward and really felt a lot of energy, particularly from people in the Kidney Stars program, uh, the medical students, residents and fellows. Um, I had the opportunity to be with a group of residents and students and just the Enthusiasm was really something that I had have, haven't seen in a while. I also really enjoyed the fellows in training bowl this year, not because our team from Mount Sinai uh, finished in second place, uh, but just really great to see the friendly competition, um, a lot of energy again um, at the fit bowl. We may have been treated unfairly. We probably should have won. I think it was a uh, an event that will continue to grow over the next few years, and so really excited to see some of these trainees get involved with. Many of our social media projects, and I think this will be continuing to grow over the next few years.
0: Yeah, the transformation of the Fit bowl has been really remarkable. That used to be just a little, a little tiny nothing on the side of the show, and they the moving it into the the exhibition hall and the way they set it up, it's great. They've really done a nice job of making that a highlight and a central component i think it's i think they've done an excellent job with it
2: i think it's really inspiring people to you know take these games the jeopardy the case-based debates back to their own training programs i got a couple emails and messages afterwards to share some of our templates so that they can do the similar activities at their fellowship programs and so i think all around it was a big win
4: excellent matt what do you got well, want to repeat a few things. First, uh, thanks for the shout-out for the pre-meeting for Basic Science. I think it was a great success. We had 149 people sign up. Uh, thanks to everyone on the committee for making it a great program. And I do have a lot of hope that this will be an official pre-meeting next year, but we'll have to do some negotiation to make that happen. Um, I think the Fit Bowl was really fun, and I enjoyed that. Uh, It was the first time I've actually watched it. They definitely need to increase the size again. They should put it right in the middle. I'd love to see that. Seeing people standing all around, I think that was really cool to see, and all of the fellows were, were, I think, having fun. The NIFJC party, I think, is a highlight always is and every year gets bigger and this is the 10th year so that was uh um really cool to see a lot of people go up the elevator to was that sixth floor is that where we were yeah sixth floor, sixth floor. Yeah. and uh, just a packed room with all types of people and meeting everyone and
0: mostly a miracle that there was no catastrophic elevator failure that was the most terrifying elevator that
4: elevator it. was scary uh but it it, it served its purpose to get nephrologists up to the sixth floor to party, so it was cool.
0: I, I, I want to say I don't think I've ever been to a kidney week party that was larger than that one.
3: Uh, yeah, I have to agree. This was pretty large. It was packed, and there were so many people who keep kept coming until until almost the time we were closing.
0: So that, I think
4: those were the highlights for me. I think DC was a was a, was a good place. I, I enjoyed it.
0: The, I liked the convention center. I thought the rooms were. Bigger than it
4: wasn't as spread out too, like you could actually get around. Joel, were you at Kidney Week?
0: Yeah, I was. There were two things that were, well, to me, the I think the reason we're going to remember this Kidney Week is roxodustat was introduced. And this is a drug that my group has been investigating since phase one. I mean, since 2004, 2006, we've been doing studies with Fibrogen and to watch that drug mature from phase one phase two, phase three trials. And the phase three, three trials were forever. They were multi-year trials to get them out and to have Rocks uh, Rockies and Himalayas and um, Olympus uh, have their those trials announced in the at the late-breaking and uh, high-impact clinical trial session. Was Can you remind
4: us uh, if the endpoints were anything other than hemoglobin changes?
0: Yeah. The drugs work. Hemoglobins were raised in the dialysis studies. They were up against EPO, and they worked just as well as EPO. And in the CKD, they were up against placebo, and there was a nice separation in hemoglobins. But what everybody was really waiting for was the uh, major adverse cardiac events and um, had, and I I think I've got this right, their primary outcome was a composite of MACE and uh, mortality, and there was no difference. But if you started to break it out, there was a reduction in MACE, a reduction in MACE plus, which was major adverse cardiac events plus hospitalization, I think is what the plus was, and no difference in mortality. Uh, And then there was a decrease in transfusion with the uh, roxidustat. I'm looking forward to those being published so we can really kind of go over those results. But I think those are the high points. But essentially, this is a successful drug. It looks like it's marginally safer than the drugs that we have out there. It's a pill rather than a shot. This is going to be a game changer for people on peritoneal dialysis. I have CKD patients, not so many, but some of them that have to come to clinic every two weeks, every four weeks to get a shot. We're just going to have to have them take a pill now it's really it's gonna you know it's pretty it's pretty amazing uh the technology that has uh come about and it's particularly interesting that it was just uh, about a month after uh, the Nobel Prize for oxygen sensing had been awarded in medicine and so to see Roxadu I, I was kind of choked up when that happened I mean it was it was, it had been my entire career as an attending nephrologist we've been shepherding fibrogen along uh, in our clinics and testing it in patients and to see it it hasn't really crossed the finish line until it gets FDA approval, but it's pretty apparent that it's going to get FDA approval now.
3: Now, now remind me, the we already know it increases hemoglobin, right? Those
0: trials have been published. Yeah, we've so this know, is,
3: sort of, so, uh, is this sort of like the diabetes thing where they want to show that it's safe, not just that it's effective?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. So this, you know, this is all in the shadow of uh, the disaster with uh high hemoglobins mm-hmm. with epo and that the reality was is that the FDA never really required good safety trials well, cardiovascular safety trials all the trials for epo and uh darbepoetin uh for approval had just been to show increases in hemoglobin their endpoints were reduction in transfusions no one ever considered that that they could be toxic on top of that and we learned you know literally 15, 20 years after these drugs were approved that they had this toxicity. And so all the anemia drugs now have to go through trial, just like the, the diabetes drugs that show uh, equivalence in, um, in in total mortality and major adverse cardiac events. And so, yeah, we knew the drugs worked and sure enough, the drugs worked. But what we know now is that they are safer than uh, ESAs and my sense was it wasn't a home run. We didn't see that mortality difference, which is what you really want to see. But they hit their major adverse cardiac events. That's not nothing. So again, I am really waiting to see these publications. It's hard for me to keep everything straight when I can't see it in, in print. But it was pretty impressive. And the the guy who announced it is uh, is Bob Provenzano, who's the guy who hired me into my current job, and uh, he was the guy who was doing all those fibrogen studies. He got he got to give the give the big plenary presentation for late breaking and hybrid high, uh, high impact trials very cool
3: yeah and, and roxa is like the first of the block but there are a bunch of other do stats
0: yeah so i think uh yeah i think Vidadu stat is the next one but it's i think it's two years away it's a it's gonna be a while i think roxa is gonna have a nice head start uh i think we are done here anybody else have anything else they want to talk about What's next? What's next? The next, the next big conference is KidneyCon. I saw the email came this week announcing KidneyCon's on its way. And Matt Samira, I know you guys are involved. Tell me any any heads up on what uh, KidneyCon's going to look like um, this it's year. it's going
2: to be very similar to previous years. It's going to be held April sixteenth to nineteenth in the great city of Little Rock, Arkansas. And um, this year we're going to be introducing some new workshops that were actually applications from the nephrology community and a lot of the same that has been popular in the past. And so the big bowling party the first night on the thursday we'll do the jeopardy for the fellows a lot of interesting clinical sessions that we're very excited about um as well as the the workshops that we'll have for an entire day so hoping to see many of our listeners at kidney Con.
0: and then what, what's the story with the cooking class
4: Cooking class is going to be a first-come, first-serve, about 30 people, and it's going to be in a test kitchen, and individuals going to learn how to cook kidney-friendly food that they actually would want to eat. And there also might be wine, and it'll be fun. So when that's announced, you got to sign up. Okay, so
0: that's the thing. It's going to be announced, and it's going to be a race to get get your name on that
4: it's going to be on Thursday night sort of before everything gets going uh, so yeah it would be like sort of mid afternoon before bowling
2: and so our our website has just been updated so kidneycon.org has all the information including the full itinerary for the conference
0: and then uh, is there a, what's a CRT school
4: yeah so the day the day before the conference we're going to have a mini CRT academy mm-hmm. It's going to consist of uh, didactic lectures and about um, AKI and CVHD, things like that. And it's it's part of KidneyCon, but it, you can do it separate, or you can do all of it, or you can not do that and you just come to KidneyCon. So it's sort of like a bonus mini one-day conference.
0: So if you had a fellow who wanted to get the full Monty, he needs to arrive Wednesday night so he can do CRRT Thursday morning, cooking class, bowling. Yep, and then uh, workshops Friday and lectures on Saturday.
2: It's actually I think the other way around this year. Yeah,
0: so it's Fridays lectures, workshops on Saturday, and meatballs and martinis. And
4: then uh, and then research discussion for anybody who can wake up early the next day Sunday. But yeah, it'll be it'll be a lot of fun and uh, looking forward to it. And some of the new oh you're uh, in microscopy. With Jay Seltzer and Juan Carlos Velez are gonna, are actually gonna spin urine down and actually figure out how to find stuff that I've never seen in urine before, uh, that you
0: see on Twitter all the time. Yeah, they they, they they find things that there they're that's unbelievable. It's they're, they're incredible. Right. Okay.
2: And and to all of our trainees that are listening, many travel grants available this year, and I believe more than we've had in the past. Is that I right, think Matt?
4: there's going to be 20 available at least, and we're going to shoot for more. But uh, if you're a trainee and you want to come, please DM either me or Samira, and we'll find a way to get you there. I mean, we could – Joel uh,
0: – how many can you fit in your room? I can take three or four, for sure. Yeah, uh, I requested bunk beds and hammocks. It should be work, it should work out just fine.
4: <laughs> I mean, it is Arkansas. It, it, we would actually be camping.
0: <laughs> okay, guys, this has been awesome. And uh, I look forward to editing this down to something south of six hours. Okay. Thank you, guys. All right. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Apple a day. Thank you. Generalizability!